Hi, this is Lawson Stone, and I'm coming to you live from the late Bronze Age Canaanite Citadel at Tel Hatzor. It's a 200-acre mound in the extreme north of Israel, and it is the centerpiece of Joshua's northern campaign, as depicted in Joshua 11. And we're discussing the theme of violence in the Old Testament, and this is part two. And it's appropriate that while I'm doing this, the Israeli army is practicing automatic weapons and artillery fire. <laughs> well, the problem of violence in the Old Testament doesn't involve what we'd call mere criminality. The real problem is divinely sanctioned, divinely commanded violence, and particularly the commands to annihilate the inhabitants of Canaan. These sound to our modern ears like ethnic cleansing or genocide. Now, before moving forward, we need to get clear about what our question really is. It's worth asking. Why did a good God not only allow, but sanction, command, and participate in warfare? But as important as that question is, it is likely not one that we can finally answer definitively. But there's another question that might be more urgent for every Bible reader, teacher, or preacher, and that is, what do the Old Testament writers themselves try to teach the reader with this material? Do the books of Joshua and Judges with their presentation of warfare and violence provide a warrant a summons for modern readers to take up arms, to join an implacable conflict against a human enemy? The Old Testament presents two basic kinds of warfare. The first appears in Joshua, and we'll call it holy war. Holy war is war in which God himself is the main combatant, though Israel participates too. Central in holy war is the Hebrew term cherem, the idea that the enemy and all their possessions are devoted to Yahweh. On the surface, this looks like a command for total annihilation and destruction. This type of warfare is characteristic of the book of Joshua. The other type, found in Judges, will leave for another time. By the way, it's also fitting just to be here at Chatzor and to actually see the signs of the presence of Joshua and the Israelites. And so uh, let's look at what the inspired author of the book of Joshua wants the reader to get from the book. Now to start, here are seven facts about holy war in Joshua. Fact one, holy war is divinely declared. It is war that Yahweh directly commands by means of a special revelation to his chosen leader. This didn't involve simply pondering principles and policies and deciding that war is probably the best plan. This was Moses and Joshua. Both are pictured as prophets, meaning they received direct messages from Yahweh about his will. And right then and there, a life and death decision had to be made. So if a reader wanted to use the warfare in Joshua to justify human warfare, they'd need to assert that their war plan was not merely justifiable. They'd have to claim that their plans were revealed directly by God. Fact number two, holy war in the book of Joshua is miraculous. God doesn't just declare war, he's the fighter. Yahweh the divine warrior fights and miraculously brings victory, and the Israelites march around, two trumpets shout, and mainly just watch in awe and then follow up with whatever action Yahweh commands. So if a modern reader wanted to justify violence from Joshua, they'd have to set aside strategies, weapons, and training and expect miraculous victories. It begins to look like the author of Joshua doesn't give us a very good plan for modern warfare. Fact number three, this is a surprise. The book of Joshua reports cases of mercy against Israel's enemies. Here are three quick examples. Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2 is Israel's first contact with the enemy. Now a prostitute would likely also be a priestess in a pagan shrine. She's everything they're there to destroy. Yet the Israelites show mercy to Rahab. It's because of her confession in faith meant she was no longer the enemy. 
Israel spares her and her house. One wonders what the occupants of her house might have been. Rahab's incorporated into Israel and ultimately ends up in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah in Matthew 1. Then we see the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 and 10. In fear, they trick Joshua into making a covenant, which Joshua and God both honor. While it was a hasty act, Israel is not punished, but experiences the greatest miracle in the book of Joshua, when the sun and the moon halt in the sky so that Israel can keep its word and race to the defense of their new partners. Again, in the great reading of the law in Joshua 8, the author speaks of all Israel as composed of the native-born and foreigners. So the command to annihilate the Canaanites seems to have had an exception clause. Israel won't kill those who take shelter under Yahweh's wings. Fact number four. After the battles of Jericho and Ai, the book of Joshua proclaims Israel's wars in Canaan as responses to aggression by Canaan's kings. In chapters 5 through 11, we read many times that when the Canaanites heard what God had done, they massed together, combined their armies, and prepared to annihilate the Hebrews. The book presents these conspiracies not just as military resistance against Israel, but as a rejection of Yahweh's presence in Canaan, in contrast with Rahab's confession of faith. So again, these stories don't make very good fodder for defending a modern practice of warfare, but they already seem to be images of how the nations reject God and fall under His judgment. Fact number five, holy war in the book of Joshua is not really a war against Canaan and Canaanites. Except for very general statements, we never read a specific narrative describing an Israelite assault on peasants or farming villages. The entire central part of the land, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the heartland of the early Israelite settlement, provides not a single battle story. Israel moves in apparently without a fight. All the battle narratives name city kings as the enemy. These kings were all appointed by Egypt to suck every morsel of economic and military benefit out of Canaan for the greater glory of Pharaoh. Joshua's mission seems to have been to destroy the network of city rulers who controlled Canaan, breaking Egypt's exploitation of Canaan and defying Pharaoh's claims to be divine. The battle narratives climax in Joshua 12 with a list not of annihilated populations or destroyed cities, but dead tyrants. So, what do we make of the language of extermination, of killing everyone who breathes? This brings us to fact number six. Scholars of ancient military texts remind us that in the ancient Near East, battle accounts used very stereotyped extreme language. Nuance was not their strong suit. A king would claim he killed every single occupant of a land and then report how much tribute the presumably dead enemies now had to pay each year. Clearly the claim of annihilation only meant to convey total victory. We should also remember that our modern notions of genocide and total war come from our knowledge of weapons of mass destruction and our historical experience of genocide by these means. Ancient, the ancient world, for all its ferocity, really couldn't do much better than spears and arrows and swords and catapults. They had no way to envision the literal extermination of whole populations. The language was stock military rhetoric to convey unquestioned, uncontested victory. Maybe that could help us with those statements in Joshua too. Fact number seven, the book of Joshua combines the stories of miraculous victory in battle with appeals to be faithful to the law of God as it's found written in the book of Deuteronomy. The reader is not called to emulate the militarism, but to draw from the battle stories the courage and determination to be obedient to God's will, especially as found in Deuteronomy. Now that has two consequences. First, Deuteronomy thinks of the law as a written text, a scripture. The written will and revelation of Yahweh is ultimately the sacred space, the promised land the reader is called to occupy. 
Second, the core requirement of Deuteronomy is to love Yahweh with all the heart. This involves remembering Him, commemorating His mighty deeds, celebrating His festivals, living kindly on the land, caring for the sojourner, protecting the dispossessed and the helpless. So the reader's given war stories, but these stories explicitly illustrate a scripturally shaped spirituality of love for God and compassionate regard for others in the creation. So it's ironic that a book devoted to the subject matter of holy war is actually aimed at engendering holy love. Now here's one concluding thought. There's still something disquieting and disturbing about this theme of cherem, total destruction of all that defies God's presence and rule. This theme still rests uneasily with our inclusivist sensibilities. It reminds us that this promise of God and the call to faithful obedience are not an invitation only, but a life or death command. Here in Joshua, in real space and time, every person's future was permanently determined by their solidarity with the Lord of hosts. A line was drawn in the sand. Who will serve Yahweh? The fact is, a day is coming when Joshua Jesus will appear in the clouds of glory, seated on a white horse with a two-edged sword to pass judgment on all that violates and destroys God's creation. A time will come when not just the temporal earthly happiness, but the eternal destiny of every single person will be decided by only one criterion, solidarity with the one God, the Lord of hosts, who reveals Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Have we become so comfortable with a situation in which we can enjoy the blessings of God while not feeling a need to enjoy God Himself? And so now we're a little uncomfortable when God brings that state of affairs to an abrupt halt. Rahab got it right. Yahweh is the God of the heavens and the earth, and the kings of Canaan have every reason to fear. Likewise, when we ponder the righteous judgment that God will execute when Jesus slips his pierced foot into the stirrup and swings up into the saddle of that white war horse and unsheaths that sword, maybe we too have reason to tremble. Mm -hmm.